Well, we're not in a series at this point in time in, in our Sunday evening services. We're sort of between series. And so that means this evening I'm preaching a, just a one-off message. It'll be a standalone message. But in coming to prepare for a message like this or on a night like this, it leaves you asking, what can I be teaching people? What would it be a benefit for us to read together? Uh, what does God have to say to us from his word? And one of the things I've been thinking about recently over my holiday or through the Holiday Bible Club last few weeks is... Uh, That verse from 1 Corinthians, um, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And the thing that's been in my mind is, how is it exactly that we as believers do everything for the glory of God? How do I eat and drink for the glory of God? How do I perform my bodily functions? How do I take care of myself? How do I live every hour of the day for the glory of God? And similarly, another phrase that's been in my mind is that first question and answer from the the Shorter Catechism. I don't say that to pretend that I know the Shorter Catechism, but the first question and answer is known by many people. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When people ask, what is the purpose of life? The church's answer for centuries now has been, your purpose in life is to glorify God. Is that my purpose? And if it was to be my purpose, how would that be shown? How do I make glorifying God the purpose in my life? It's far easier to take the second part of that phrase and make that my purpose, to enjoy God forever. Forever. I can see how that might be my aim. But that's not what the sentence says. The sentence says my purpose, my chief end, is to glorify God. And secondly, to enjoy him forever. How do I eat, live, drink, act through all hours of my day to the glory of God? Given that... There are some people who've given themselves entirely over to doing godly things, as it were. People who've become monks and nuns. People who've closeted themselves up in monasteries, praying, reading God's word for hours on end, weeks, days, months, years, and still come out with the answer, this is not it. This is not how I glorify God. There's some other way. And those monks are... They're not, it's not just Martin Luther I'm talking about. There's people here who've experienced a, a, a driving desire to try and please God in this way and yet found this is not the biblical pattern. This is not the real way to glorify God. There's some way that we're able to glorify God in our day-to-day living. How do we achieve that? What is it? And as I've been thinking about this, I've decided to bring us to Ephesians chapter 1 this evening. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul seems to run through with a great long list of blessings that Christians have. That second part of that statement, how to enjoy God forever. Paul runs through those blessings and yet he puts them in the context of glorifying God. So that's why we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1 today. And the passage that we've read starts at verse 3. Um, with a simple call to praise and worship. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, this whole passage that we've read, all 12 verses or so, is actually just one long sentence. Over 200 words long. Paul just sets off, praise be, and then he just reels off all these reasons of why we should praise God. It just skips and dances and leaps through the passage. It's just full of joyful, overflowing thankfulness and praise to God for what he has done for us in blessing us and saving us. And what what is it that prompts Paul to praise God in this way? Well, verse 3, praise God, the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Praise God for the blessings that he has given us. Praise him for the way he's helped us and, and served us. But hang on, I thought you said. I thought you said this was going to be about how salvation is not about us enjoying God. It's how about God is glorified. Well, that's true. But as I said earlier, what's going to happen here is Paul is going to look at these blessings that God has given us and is going to see how those blessings become the context for the way in which we can glorify God and bring him praise. And as we go through, notice how each of these blessings are designed to bring us closer to God. And notice how we only receive these blessings through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to receive any one of these blessings except through Jesus Christ. And I've listed seven blessings that I get from this section. I think there are probably more if you were ready to dig uh, and go through with a fine tooth comb. Uh, but I've suggested at least seven blessings that Paul describes to us. And the first is that we are chosen by God. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us. And this idea of God's choosing us is an idea that will come up time and time again throughout this passage. Um, Verse 5, again, you get ideas of God predestining us. God setting our destiny, as it were, beforehand. And and both of these ideas, choosing and predestination, come up again in verse 11. And this choosing of God is not a kind of grudging, coerced, scrape-in-the-bottom-of-the-barrel kind of choice. This choice of God, God choosing you, is an act of his pleasure, of his goodwill. It's a choice that is born out of love for the people that he chooses. Verse 4, in love he predestined us. Uh, This is in accordance with his pleasure and will. If you're a Christian, it pleased God to choose you to be his. God is pleased to have you as his own. Now, what did you do to deserve that choosing? What have you done to please God in that way? Well, have a look again at verse 4. He chose us before the foundation of the world. What had you done before the foundation of the world? Of course, nothing. It's not your goodness that's earned God's choosing of you. It's not your moral standing that's earned God choosing you. It's not your upbringing. It's not the way you think. It's not some wise decision that you made. It's nothing of you that causes God to choose you. God has chosen you because he loves you. God has chosen you because it's his good pleasure to choose you. And this is exactly the pattern that we see God work in throughout of Scripture. 
Think right back to Genesis. Think to Abraham. He he sort of comes up out of the blue. You're reading through Genesis and there's hardly any mention of him beforehand. And then chapter 12 comes and boom. God gives Abraham this huge packet of promises. Abraham, you're going to be blessed. You're going to have many, many descendants. And you, Abraham, are going to have the privilege of bringing blessing to the whole world. What has Abraham done to deserve these promises? Absolutely nothing. God has just chosen him because it pleased God to choose him. And you you go further on, you read about Israel, and Israel are rescued out of Egypt, and they're set on their way towards the promised land. And what what does God tell them? He asks them, why have I chosen you, Israel, to be my people? Is it because you're better? Is it because you're stronger? Is it because you're bigger? Is it because you've got more potential? Is it because I've seen something good in you that you might be able to do in future? No, none of that. I've chosen you because it pleases me to choose you. I've chosen you because of my love for you. And now in the New Testament age, for you as a Christian, why has God chosen you to be one of his people? Not because of anything you have done. He's had his heart set on you from before the foundation of the world. He has chosen you to be his own. Yes, there was a time when you were distanced from God. When the reality of your life only looked like you were an object of God's wrath, not of God's love. And yet, the reality of this choosing comes into effect when? When you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him. This choosing of God does not happen apart from the person of Christ. If you are chosen, you are chosen in Christ. If you are loved by God and drawn by him, that choosing happens in Christ. The first blessing that Paul points us to is the blessing of the privilege of being chosen by God in Christ Jesus, his son. But secondly, what purpose did God have in choosing certain people? Why has God chosen us? Well, verse 4 describes it. He says, God's chosen us to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's why God's chosen you. He's chosen you to be holy and blameless in his sight. Think for a moment what those words mean. You are holy. That's what you've been chosen to be, to be holy. To be holy means to be set apart for God. All the world belongs to God. Everything in existence is his. And yet he chooses you to be set apart for himself. He chooses you to be something different. He chooses you to be reserved as his special treasured possession. And not just for the sake of being different, Not just to set you apart, not just to draw a dividing line between you and some others arbitrarily, but he chooses you to be devoted to him. He chooses you to be obedient to him. Yes, this God who has thousands and thousands of angels at his beck and call, who can do his will so easily, just at the the click of a finger, yet God chooses you to be holy to be set apart, to be devoted to him. And this holiness and this blameless that is 
blamelessness that is mentioned clearly indicates there's, there's an ethical dimension to this holiness. It's not just that we're set apart as servants, but that we are, uh, that, that we're made blameless as well. That though we are part of fallen humanity, though we have turned our back upon God, though we've done the exact opposite of what God would have wanted us to do, God chooses us to make us obedient, to make us blameless. And he's able to consider us perfectly obedient, without fault. He makes us like him. He makes us share his character, holy and blameless. And that begs the question, how does that happen? How are we made holy? How is a sinner made blameless before God? How can I share the character of God? Well, again, it's not something that we earn for ourselves. God doesn't just set us off on a path towards holiness and blamelessness. He doesn't just show us where it might be found. Actually, he makes us holy and blameless. But not by what we've done, by what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Just as God chooses us, not because of what we've done, but because of his love, so God makes us holy, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. This holiness doesn't originate with us. It doesn't end with us. It is given to us from outside. And so we are dressed in holiness, as it were. A holiness that's not our own. A holiness that comes from none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our holiness comes from. That's where our blamelessness comes from. And even those things that we do as Christians, you might say, well, yeah, I do some things that are holy. I do some things that are blameless. Sometimes I am obedient to God. But even those actions that you do that can be counted blameless or that can be counted holy, where do they come from? Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples, says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If your life bears fruit, if your life bears the fruit of holiness and blamelessness, it's not because of anything in you. It's because you, as a branch, are abiding in me, the vine. And the fruit that your life might bear doesn't spring from you or anything in you. It stems from me, Jesus says, the vine. So this holiness and this blamelessness is only received in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we are in God's family. God didn't just choose us and set us his servants to to keep us at arm's length. God draws us intimately close towards him. Verse 5, in love he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Now we've already used this title of God already in our service this evening. He is our father. Is there any more preferred title that a Christian might use to refer to God than our Father? I don't think there is. Just think how often we start our prayers with our Father. And why do we refer to God so often as our Father? I think it's because it encapsulates so much of these promises and these blessings that we have. To call God our Father means that we recognise that he is the one who begets his children. He is the the, the giver of life for his children. We would be nothing. We would be dead 
in trespasses and sins if it were not for the life that our Father has given us. Calling God our Father means that we recognise that he cares for us, that he provides for us, that he knows what is good for us, that he knows everything about us. Calling God our Father recognises that just like a father disciplines and teaches and trains his children, God will discipline and train and teach us. But not in a way to damage or harm us. Not in a way to just step on us and tread us down into the muck. But in a way to teach us and to help us grow, to build us up. That's why we call God our Father. Because he allows his children to learn and develop. Because he doesn't stop them from entering danger at times. He allows them, under his guidance and supervision, to go through that danger. In order that they might be taught. In order that their faith in him might be strengthened. The father is the source of our inheritance. That's not something we often think about in today's culture, but it's true nonetheless. Our inheritance comes from our Father. And that's just as true for a Christian as it is as, uh, when we think of uh, natural relationships. And when we view our Heavenly Father in light of the parable of the prodigal son, we see our Father in heaven to be just like that Father in the parable who was ready to hitch up his robes and run toward his wayward son as soon as he turned back toward him. We see ourselves as that wayward son. And we see our need and the foolishness of not returning to that father. So recognise that in verse 5, when it uses this language of adoption, don't think of adopting a whale or a leopard, for example, like the WWF might encourage you to do. You know, that kind of adoption. You, you, you sort of send off some money, but you don't really know the whale. You're never going to see the whale. You're never going to ride on its back or anything, you know. It's just a, here's some money, here's some help. And the adoption is distant and far off. It's also not like the adoption of a pet. You might go down to the rescue centre and you, you see all the dogs nice and well cared for, set up in their cages, all nice and fed, some of them potty trained already. And you choose... Which dog might I adopt? Which of these lovely little darlings might I take home to live with us? Now the language of this adoption is the adoption of a child left for dead in the gutter in the streets of Mumbai or some other struggling city. In the dirt, unlovely and unloved. And he's God stoops down and picks him up and puts him in the palace of the king. That's the image we're to think about in this kind of adoption. God himself chooses to become our father. And now we're we're already starting to build something of this picture of the great mountain of blessings that Paul wants us to to realise we have in the gospel. And we mustn't forget that these blessings, this choosing, this blamelessness, this sonship that we only have in and through and by virtue of our union with Christ, by the way, these things aren't without cost. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. 
That is, redemption means to be purchased or to be bought. God has bought us. He's purchased us. At one time, we were slaves. Slaves to sin. Bound by sin and totally under sin's control. We'd given ourselves over, we'd prostituted ourselves to false gods, to worthless idols, to our selfish pride and our sinful natures. And we were trapped in a cycle of life that led us unable to choose for ourselves anything good and certainly unable to choose God for himself. And God, in order to adopt us, if he was going to draw us into his family, in order to make us holy and pleasing to himself, had to buy us back from those things which once had us. He had to redeem us. Like buying a slave in the marketplace. He had to pay the price to free us from our old master to draw us to himself. And so we no longer belong to those things that once had us. We no longer belong to our sinful nature. We no longer belong to sin which once mastered us. We now belong We are purchased, we have been bought by God himself. We are his possession. And what was the price he had to pay? We have redemption through the blood of his son. Verse 7. The the blood of Jesus Christ. That was the cost of redemption. Not, not Not a world... Not some galaxy, not a new universe. Just think, could you offer a universe for the life of a man? It seems a pretty steep price. God could have done that in an instant. How much, how much did it take him to create a universe? He could have offered a universe if that was the price. But it cost him so much more than anything in creation. It cost him his son, who had to become part of the creation. Life itself becoming man and then offering his life unto death. That was the cost of redeeming you. That was the cost of buying you back from your old slave master so that you might now belong to God himself. And this redemption doesn't happen through anyone else other than the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood. So we see that the adoption is that we enjoy is not without cost but it costs more than we could ever know. It's not God showing philanthropy that that springs from his buckets of wealth like Jeff Bezos or, or Bill Gates might do. God saving us is a sacrificial commitment to us that gave almost all that he had in order to make us his own. And when did this happen? Remember this, the fourth blessing, that this happened while we were still sinners. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies of God, when we hated God, when we had our backs turned against him, when we weren't just ignorant of him, but we were actively going against him, seeking ourselves rather than him, seeking to put ourselves on the throne of the world, or at least our little worlds. When we were shaking our fist at God, when we were spitting in his face and kicking him while he was down, That's the time that Christ died for us. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. It was the redemption of sinners that Christ made on the cross. 
And so as well as being redeemed, we also have, verse 7, the forgiveness of sins. And without this forgiveness, there would be no peace with God. We would still be under his wrath. Without this forgiveness, we would still have to answer for our own wrongdoing, for our own unbelief, for our hatred towards God. We would have to face the full consequences of being rejected by him forever and ever, just like we had rejected him. But the blessing of peace with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Because as we're united to him, he is declared innocent on our behalf. And our sin is transferred to him and he pays it for us on our behalf. And so to be saved means that you have moved from a status of being rejected by God, facing his anger and facing his judgment, now to a status of acceptance, receiving his welcome, receiving his peace. These are the riches of God's grace which have been lavished on us. Now as we move towards the end of the passage, we're going to see how this relationship with God begins to intensify even further. In verse 9 and 10, God goes on to reveal the mystery of his will. Now, the thing that makes this blessing so significant is not just the fact that we, as humans, as people, can know something of the plan of God. We know what God plans to do. Just think of the privilege that that is. We shouldn't forget that privilege. But that's not the the real magnitude of this blessing here. That's not what makes this blessing so significant. The thing that makes this blessing so significant is its content. Verse 10. God has a purpose to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. God's plan is that one day Christ is going to exercise the authority that is already his. He has all authority on heaven and on earth. And one day he's going to put that authority into practice. He's going to trample on every authority, every power, every dominion that sets itself up against him. He's going to crush them. He's going to defeat them. They're going to be trampled under his feet. And everything remaining will be renewed and redeemed by virtue of his power, by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, by virtue of his victory that he has already won, And everything that's left will be summed up, will be gathered together, will be brought under one head, even Christ Jesus. And the great promise of the gospel is that you can be part of what is summed up under him. You can be rescued, you can be safe, you can be included in Christ. This is the inheritance of Christ. This is the reward given to Christ by God the Father for the work that Christ has done. And the promise of the gospel is that you, as a Christian, because you are a brother of Christ, because you are united to Christ, because you are in Christ, you also will share that inheritance that Christ will receive. Christ is going to receive all things. Everything is going to be summed up in him. That's his gift from the Father. That's his inheritance. That's what he's waiting for. And you have been made a co-heir. You also, on that day, will reign with him. 
you will rule. You will trample all that injustice, all that shame, all that defeat, all that hurt under your own feet. As you rule and reign, as you receive your inheritance along with Jesus Christ. That's the hope and the promise that we have in the gospel. Now just think of the promises that people in the Old Testament received. Think back to Abraham, for example, the promises that he had. He was given those promises, but what did he have to show for the promises? Nothing, really. All he had to look back on was, well, the word of God. God's promised, and I believe, said Abraham. Think about Israel. They've been brought out of Egypt, and they're promised a new land. What did they have to show for that promise? Well, they had God's word, and they also could look back at the way God had acted. He saved us from Egypt. We trust, therefore, that he will work in the future. But for the New Testament believer, for the Christian, you have something even more than just God's word and just God's actions in the past. Look at verse 13. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If you're a Christian, God hasn't just left you with evidence of his work in the past. He hasn't just left you with the truth of his word. He's left you with a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance that will one day come. He's given you his spirit. It's a, it's a down payment. It's a taste of the glory that you will one day receive. He's placed his spirit into your heart. Do you see now the way that Paul's thought escalates through this passage? How through these blessings, Paul shows us how what the gospel is doing is it's drawing us ever closer to God himself. You were chosen by God. You were appointed by God to be his. You were adopted as his son. You were purchased by God. You were washed clean by God. You were given a promise by God of even closer relationship with him And finally, you're given a down payment. You're given a taste. You're given the presence of God himself to enjoy. This is just a taste. The Holy Spirit that you have living in you is a taste of what you will one day enjoy throughout all of eternity. The climax of the blessing that Paul talks about here is the gift of the very presence of God. His Spirit dwelling in our hearts, living in us, working with us. Later in the chapter, he'll call it the great, mighty power of God working in our hearts and lives. That spirit is it's the application of these blessings. It's the guarantee of all those other blessings that we've mentioned. And Jesus says, it's his prerogative alone to send the spirit to those who put their faith in him. The culmination of all these blessings that Paul draws our attention to, the culmination of all these blessings which Paul praises God for, is the blessing of God himself living in us by his spirit. A guarantee of what we will one day experience fully. Reconciliation. Redemption. Being drawn back into the presence of God our Father. Now where do we go from here by way of application? Well, there's two important things. The first 
Many people count themselves Christians. They hope that they have this adoption. They hope that they have been chosen by God. They hope that they will receive the promises of God. But they're hoping for these things outside of the person of Christ. They they trust that they might be adopted because, well, they turn up to church and they spend time with other believers. If I spend time with the family, surely that puts me in the family, doesn't it? They hope that they might have the, received the promises of God, the hope of eternal life, because they know about it. They know how to talk about it. They know how to think about it. They know the content of those promises, perhaps better than other people do. But what Paul has shown is that none of these blessings, not one of them, is received outside of the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to be saved, if you want these promises to apply to you, if you want to be one of these that are counted as God's chosen people, the only way to receive these blessings is through Jesus Christ himself. You need to ask yourself, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Not Jesus Christ plus my own effort. Not, well, I'm... I'm pretty good and I know stuff about Jesus so that should be okay shouldn't it? No. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for him to give you all of these blessings as a gift? Not something that you earn. Not something that can be lost. Are you trusting Jesus Christ to give you these things by his grace? That's the only way you can receive them. He offers them with open hands. Will you repent from sin and take them, receive them? And the second application is this. All of these blessings, I said, are set in the context of praising God. We started out in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6. All these things are done to the praise of his glorious grace. That phrase comes up again in verse 12 in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And verse 14, uh, these things, uh, the spirit is given as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. All of these blessings that God has given are to the praise of his glory. In other words, all these blessings that God has given are for the purpose of us glorifying God. Now how does that work? Two ways. One is, when you realise just what God has blessed you with in Christ, when you realise just how wonderful these gifts really are, how can you do anything other than praise God? How can you do anything other than join with Paul and praise God from the bottom of your heart and start and don't stop until the words just stop coming? 200 words it took Paul to run out of energy before he stopped praising God. When you realise what he's done for you, how can you do anything other than praise him? And secondly, these verses have shown that the goal of our salvation is to be united to God, to be reconciled to him. And that our lives now are not our own, but they belong to another. They belong to God who's purchased us. And that the goal that we're striving towards is not some 
ethereal, heavenly place, not just some vague notion of of good ideas and, and greater life. The goal that we're driving towards is to be with God himself. That's our goal. That's our hope. And God has given us these blessings, and just the giving of these blessings are to the praise of his glorious grace. So we come back to those questions that I presented at the beginning. How is it that a person can glorify God in their eating and drinking? How is it that a person can make their life purpose to be to the glory of God? How can I glorify God through every hour of every day? And the answer, I think, is this. When our lives are lived, recognising that the goal of my life is not me or my pride or my selfishness or anything in me, but my goal in life is God himself. And when I recognise that any of these blessings are only received in and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, that causes me to live in a way that glorifies God. That causes me to shun the things that this world chases after. That causes me to speak of him in a way that promotes his glory towards other people. That causes my whole life to become a sacrifice of worship to God. We glorify God when we live not for ourselves, but for him. Seeking him, chasing after him, hoping for him. Trusting that one day we will be united to him completely.